A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode, part two of our mini series on the Hungarian Rabbinate, has been generously sponsored by the Klein family and is dedicated in honor of their illustrious grandmother, Tova Klein, from B'nai Brak, who is a direct descendant of Ga'ine Mishpachas Lev, the rabbinic dynasty who we discuss in this this mini-series, May She Have Arichas Yamin. And it is also Li'ili Nishmas, her brother, Maisha Elazar ben Rabir Miyahu, who was killed, Al-Kiddush Hashem, at a young age. So we're moving into part two. We spoke about, in part one, about Hungarian Jewry, its formation in Oberland, a little bit about the Hasidim in Unterland, the other side of Hungary, the golden age of the Hungarian rabbinate, the yeshivas that are founded by various Hungarian rabbis, the um, growing community, and also the growing challenges of modern times. So what we're going to speak about in part two is the crisis that faces Hungarian Jewry in the latter half of the 19th century. We have is the first, there's the rise of the Neolog movement, which is a uniquely Hungarian-Jewish phenomenon, and every time we discuss it on trips, when we go to Hungary or Slovakia or any of those areas, it always raises eyebrows, what's this term, neolog, and what is that, where do they come from, is it reform, is it haskala, is it, what is it exactly, and it's hard to describe, because it was very, very uniquely Hungarian phenomenon, it's um, probably inspired by a variation of of uh, German Jewish life uh, by like uh, of the likes of of Zachariah Frankel and the Breslau seminary it might slightly be compared to conservative Judaism in the United States you know about 60 years ago in the 1950s today's conservative Judaism is probably uh, a bit different to say the least and and um but even then, it's it's still different. The, the Neolog movements, their goal, unlike, let's say, if we would compare, contrast it with the German Jewish reform uh, movement, um, which their goal was to reform Judaism, was to fundamentally alter the ideological and belief system of Jewish life, 
the neologues never had an ideological goal like that. Their goal was to integrate into Hungarian society. And being that that was the end goal, so the whole form, it was less militant, um, it was to a certain extent more traditional, and uh, the goals, you know, the, the methods were different also. So it was somewhere in between, and they're on the rise, meaning Hungarian Jewry is becoming more and more um, integrated into Hungarian society, taking on Hungarian culture, language, education, customs, you have to, again, what we mentioned in part one, that they're getting full emancipation in 1867, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Edict of Emancipation completely changes the playing field because what what influences the Jewish community much more than internal struggles between the Orthodox and the Neolog is really the outside influence, the external influences of the government, of the modern era, of technology, of ideas, and uh, things like that. And and the Hungarian Jewish community is becoming more Hungarian um, in outlook, in 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 uh, in their society, and therefore there's a to a certain extent a neolog takeover of the Jewish community. So what follows the emancipation is a rabbinical conference um, in 1868, 1869, and eventually what happens following this rabbinical conference, which is from all factions of the Hungarian Jewish community, is that the Orthodox. Most of the Orthodox uh, Jewish communal leaders in Hungary make the act of secession. They secede from the central Jewish community, which was considered a, you know, a, a historic moment in Jewish history where there is a split within the Jewish community. And what it becomes is that the majority of the Jewish communities belong to the Neolog headquarters in in Budapest, and the minority of Jews in Hungary belong to the Orthodox Jewish Communal Center, which was, of course, Preshburg, the place of the Chassam Seifer. Now, the Chassam Seifer died before all this happened, right? The Chassam Seifer dies in 1839, but it, to a certain extent, it's considered the legacy of the Chassam Seifer, the conservatism, the traditionalism, the orthodoxy, um, which the Chassam Seifer inspired the, the uh, fight for traditionalism and not to change any Jewish customs, not to change anything, that is what's hovering over this rabbinic conference where the Orthodox decide to split off. And, um, and um, uh, you know, one of his students, one of his primary students, Rabbil Lichtenstein, is the mover and shaker of, of Hungarian Jewish conservatism, of, of, of traditionalism, of, uh, um, of, of this separation of the communities, of splitting the Jewish communities in Hungary. To a certain extent, the Hungarian Jewish model was copied at a later date by Rav Shamshner Fall Hirsch in Germany when he split the Jewish community in Frankfurt and he seceded from that community and created his own Orthodox Kahal Adas Yishun. The German Jewish story is very different, so there is similarity, but there are many differences as well. Um, whereas in Eastern Europe, the great massive Jewish communities of Eastern Europe, in Poland, Galicia, Russia, Ukraine, Lithuania, um, those places, they never split. They're the, there's never an Orthodox secession from the community. That was not the policy followed by the rabbis, Hasidic or Litvish or any others in Eastern Europe. 
So this was a model that was exclusively in Hungary and to a certain extent in Germany. You have to understand that the fundamental difference between the Jews of Hungary and the Jews of Eastern and more Eastern Europe was that the Jews in Poland and Lithuania were were in a critical mass. They were dominant. They were massive Jewish populations. Um, and until uh, late into the 19th century, and to a certain extent even to the into the 20th century, uh, orthodoxy and and traditional Jewish life was still the dominant um, decisive factor in most Jewish communities, and it was in control still of the traditionalists in most Jewish communities. So the idea of secession did not penetrate Eastern Europe at all, whereas in Hungary, Hungarian orthodoxy is formed as a def- as a defensive minority. They're on the defensive. They're protective which is why they become, to a certain extent, almost fanatic about Jewish custom, about no changes in, in, in Jewish life, and even the external uh, features of Jewish life, is because they are formed and, and grow in, 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 in a defensive mechanism, in a, in a fight for tradition. And that's, the, that's what's facing the Hungarian rabbis at the time. So that brings us to the third uh, stage of the Lev Rabbinic Dynasty because he stands at the heart of all these changes, of also the growth of Hasidus in Hungary, which becomes a major factor in his rabbinic career. And um, Rabbi Yirmiyahu Lev, who wrote a whole bunch of svarim called the Divrei Yirmiyahu, also important and popular svarim at the time. He was uh, one of the leading Hungarian rabbis in the 19th century. And his life story mirrors basically every conflict that this transitional stage experienced. He moves from Bohemia with his father. He's, uh, and he's also, he's a bit of an anomaly. He's one of the only Orthodox rabbis in Hungary at the time that's not associated with the Chassam Seifer's, uh, you know, with the legacy of the Chassam Seifer. He did not learn in Preshburg. He learned by his father. He was not a Talmud of the Chassam Seifer. He had what to do with the Chassam Seifer's family, but he was one of the only ones, uh, most Orthodox rabbis in the Ashkenaz, the Oberland communities. They were associated directly or indirectly, at least with the Chassam Seifer or his Talmidim or children. So we'll go through a series of conflicts that he was involved in, which uh, gives us li- a little bit of an insight into what Jewish life was like at the time. The conflict number one was what he had with the Hasidim. In general, the Ashkenaz Oberland uh, rabbis uh, from the Chassam Seifer school, they were very different than the Hasidim. They came from a Yaki background, from German-Jewish background. Uh, the Hasidim came from Galicia, very different, very different culturally, more conservative. The, uh, the Chassam Seifers, the Oberland rabbis were... To a certain extent, more exposed, more you know, more Hungarian or more German, uh, to a certain extent, and and the two of them now had to mix because they were uh, now in the same country and they're also facing similar challenges. So you know, there was uh, opposition to Hasidim to a certain to a certain extent. The Chassam Seifer himself, there's uh, things that he wrote, you know, and ironically, it's because of the Chassam Seifer's fight for tradition, that he felt that the Hasidim were changing certain customs of Ashkenaz Jewish life. That was an issue that he had with them, which is ironic. Um, but, um, but it was never 
in 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 it was never expressed in a in a um, in a organized opposition. But Rabbi Yirmiyahu Lev, he was a strong opponent of Hasidim, um, and he becomes a rabbi in Unterland in Il, where the Ismachmaisha, the founder of Hasidus in Hungary, was had been the rabbi years many years earlier. Now the community was still the Jewish communal leaders there was still fighting Hasidus, despite the fact that the Ismachmaisha was their rabbi many years earlier and had brought Hasidus to Hungary, and the descendants of the Ismachmaisha had been rabbonim in the town, had been rabbis of the community. They actually removed one of the, I think, grandchildren of the Ismachmaisha a couple of years before Rabbi Yirmiyahu Lev, the Divrei Yirmiyahu, came to town because he was preaching too much Hasidus. So he comes, he becomes the rabbi of Il, where he remains for the rest of his life, Rabbi Yirmiyahu, and he was very anti-Hasidic. He chased the Hasidic minority in the town, um, the Divrei Chaim of Tzans even complained that it's dangerous for the Hasidim and Il over there. Uh, they can't leave their homes without uh, being physically threatened by members of the community. Um, the Divrei Yirmiyahu called, called, uh, accused the Hasidim of, of being Sabbatians, of being followers of Shabsai Tzvi type of sects, and sometimes he even called them worse than the Neologs, which in in the in in Hungarian Orthodoxy at the time, that was pretty much the worst insult you could say in in that in that atmosphere was that someone's even worse than Neolog. Can you imagine how bad they must be? That's how you see he was pretty uh, sharp and fierce in his uh, dispute with the Hasidim there. In 1862, it took another turn for the worse. He got into a dispute with the Lisker Rebbe Rutzvihersh Friedman who today is famous because he's the Rebbe of Reb Shail of Karastir. But even before he was the Rebbe of Reb Shail of Karastir, he was a Talmud of the Yismach Meisha, and he founded the Liska dynasty, and he was a, a very impressive Hasidic tzaddik who lived in Hungary. Liska is not that far from Il, it's a few minutes. We usually take care of both on the same day when we go on our trips there. And it was a very bitter and prolonged fight. And um, keep in mind the dates here, the... Violent Hisnagdus, that, uh, that was the opposition to Hasidim that had gone on in Lithuania and Vilna, ended about 60 years before this, which is a different part of Europe. So you're talking about where in other parts where Hasidus had spread, the fight was a piece of history already. It was long gone. It might have been still in ideological differences, but as a violent opposition that had been long done, many years earlier. And here in Hungary, it was just reaching the um, the uh, the battlefield, so to speak, at this point. And especially in a place like Hungary, where there's no active hisnagdus, there was maybe silent opposition, but generally there was accommodation. That was the general attitude of the Oberland rabbinate to Hasidus. It was more accommodation than uh, opposition. So it definitely, in this context, it is a bit surprising, but that was his position. Now, he was um Rabbi Miolev, he was he was um you know knew the ways of the world he was uh, exposed he knew spoke german very well but he was still very very conservative in in his orthodox outlook and that brings us to conflict number 2 which was internal uh, I wouldn't even call it conflict um dispute differences of opinion within Hungarian orthodoxy about how conservative or how modern 
uh, to be. Now, this is within Hungarian Orthodoxy. In other words, uh, he's he takes the middle ground where he opposes people like Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer, who was still in Moravia before he moved to Berlin, for being too modern. Um, he's against formal Hungarian education and against identifying with Hungarian nationalism. And so he's he's very conservative. He's against the modern trends within Hungarian Jewish Orthodoxy. He's also against the ultra-conservatism expressed by certain Talmudim of the Chassam Seifer, like Reb Hillel Lichtenstein. He said they're too conservative. He, the, the, these, many of these rabbis were opposed to rabbis speaking German from the pulpit to their communities. That was a concession to modernity. And the Divri Yermio said there's no problem for a rabbi to speak German. It's the language of, of part of the country. It was either German or Hungarian. It's the vernacular. That's the idea. And it's, it's okay. It's, uh, it's, it's part of, so he was part of the centrist mainstream Hungarian Orthodoxy, by the way, where the Ksav Seifer was. And in fact, the Ksav Seifer was considered even more moderate than him. The Rabir Miolev was considered more conservative. He took the right flank of the centrist part of Hungarian Orthodoxy. That's where he stood. And that brings us, of course, to conflict number three, which was against the Neologs. This is a, the 1860s were, a, were stormy times for Hungarian Jewry. Uh, this was the, uh, the, like I mentioned, the, uh, the Congress, the Rabbinical Congress at the close of the decade, which decided the future of the rabbinate, of the Jewish communal life, recognized by the government and regulated by the government. So what would the government recognize? Would they be recognizing a neolog type of uh, Jewish communal life throughout Hungary or not? This was this that, that this is the decision that was going to happen at this Congress. So Rabbi Yirmiyoh Lev is one of the uh, leaders of Hungarian Orthodoxy. He's the head of the Orthodox faction at this rabbinical Congress, and the neologs at the Congress, who were the majority, they voted down that the Shulchan Aruch should be a decisive factor in Jewish communal life, in Jewish rabbinical life, as a guiding principle for Hungarian Jewry. The Orthodox put up the Shulchan Aruch that the that basic traditional Jewish law should still be the guiding factor, and the Neologs voted it down. And after a few other speeches in that regard, that uh, that the Neolog, um, excuse me, representative spoke at the Congress, Rabbi Yirmiyahu got up at this Congress, and he said, Mila Shem Eli, and he left the Congress, and along with him, a large amount of the Orthodox representatives of the Congress simply walked out, and they said, we can't be part of this. And they petitioned the government at different times, even earlier, earlier part of the 1860s, the, to to uh, to come closer to the orthodox position, and and this leads eventually to what Rabbi Lichtenstein, a a a a movement that he led, and other students of the Chassam Seifer, to separate the communities, to simply split the communities, which I mentioned earlier. But that brings us to conflict number four. Because Rabir Miyahu left the Divrei Miyahu, though he's the one who led the walkout on the Congress, he was against splitting the community. He felt that the damage, the long-term and overall damage to Jewish community life by having two separate Jewish communities, one belonging to a central office based in Budapest and the other one with a central office based in Preshburg, and that sometimes within each the small towns, you wouldn't be able to sustain the Jewish institutions, two Jewish cemeteries, two shuls, 
to uh, in schools and everything else along with it, it would it would be too damaging to Jewish communal life. You have to remember, we live in the Western world today, where in places like the United States, the government does not get involved, does not regulate Jewish communal life. To a certain extent, there's no such thing as a Jewish community. Uh, you know, the idea of what a Jewish community was uh, in Europe at the time was that was that was the entire you know uh, atmosphere more than atmosphere, that was the entire existence of Jewish life, was within a recognized uh, Jewish community. So most of the Orthodox rabbis, um, under the legacy and influence of the Chassam Sefer and his students, people like the Maram Shik uh, and others, they, they lead the secession of the Orthodox Jewish communities. And Rabbi Yirmiyo Lev, he leads... A new movement, which was very small, called eventually called the status quo movement. And the status quo, as the name implies, was that let things remain as they were. And in Eel, in his community, he said, we're going to have one community. We're not going to be associated with the Neologs. We're not going to be associated with the Central Orthodox uh, um, Jewish community. In that work, we're going to be our own. Status quo remained as is. We're independent. It's local, it's not central, and the community stays united in Il. Two years later, in 1872, the Maram Shik and other Orthodox leaders in Hungary made a cherem on the status quo communities. And you're not allowed to belong to the status quo communities because that's a, if, you're, if, you, uh, if you remain status quo, then that's helping the Neolog because we need as many Orthodox communities to join up with the Orthodox side because that will strengthen Orthodox Jewish communal life in Hungary. And because of that, only 5% of Jewish communities across Hungary remained status quo, and 95% were either neolog or orthodox. Neolog being the majority of Jewish communities and the minority being orthodox. So he remains unique. He keeps it ill till the end that it remains status quo, and he still remains respected by the Hungarian rabbinate despite this move of the Maram Shik. Um, when he died two years later, Many of the great leading rabbis in Hungary paid their respects and they attended the funeral. Even the Liskareba, the Liskareba, who he had had very sharp disputes with over the years, came to his Levaya. This is actually shortly before he himself died, just a couple of months before the Lisker died. But um, as, as is common uh, among great people, disputes do not become personal. They, uh, they remain ideological, so the Lisker was uh, able to attend the Leviah. Now his son, the son. now we move to the fourth generation and the fourth stage really of the story of Hungarian Orthodoxy at this time. He is also, um, he was uh, Rebbe Lazar Lev, the same name as the Shemen Reikea, who we started with in the first part of this uh, mini-series. And his set of svarim, also prestigious and important svarim, was called Pekudas Elazar, and uh, and that's how he was known as the Pekudas Elazar. And what's Hungarian Orthodoxy look like in his time? By now, they're in the minority, they're on the defensive, and they're kind of resigned to their fate in the modern world. Um, he becomes, he succeeds his father as the Rav in Il, and right after, so soon after, he becomes the rabbi. The Hasidim in town secede from the Jewish community and joined the Central Orthodox Network that I mentioned earlier. So now you have a second community. What incredibly enough happens 
is that even though his father had been the founder of the whole status quo ante movement, the Pekuda Salazar, a couple of years later, also secedes from the community together with his followers and also joins the Central Orthodox Network. So you had, by the end of his rabbinic career, a quite a bizarre situation where in the community of Il, there were three Jewish communities, all recognized by the government. There was a Hasidic community that belonged to the Orthodox, uh, Central Orthodox Network. There was Rabbi Lazar Lev, the rabbi, Ashkenaz, Oberland-style Jewish community that also belonged to the Central Orthodox Network. And then there was the rest of the Jewish community that stayed mixed, and that was still status quo. One of the few communities left in Hungary that was status quo. Now, it's interesting, the Bekudus Elazar was a businessman before his father died, and he was a huge Talmud Chacham. He wrote this farm already from a young age, while he was still a businessman. His father, his father would send Talmidim to study by him, saying that he knows how to learn better than me, so they should learn by him. He also gave shiurim to the Balabatim in town. He hated the rabbinate. He turned down offers, and uh, he only be- took the rabbinate in ill when his father died because the Jewish community pressured him. He was offered the Budapest rabbinate, which is one of the most prestigious positions in Central Europe, but he turned it down because it would be too busy in the large city. He would not be able to occupy himself with the yeshiva, which is what he did in Il. He wanted to have a yeshiva. He wanted to teach his students, which is, again, characteristic of many of the Hungarian rabbis of the time, that they saw their position as rabbi as a dual position between being a rabbi of the community and also being a rosh yeshiva of a yeshiva, which they wanted to invest in. He was also the rabbi in... uh, in Ungvar later on, and over there he was primarily occupied with the yeshiva, with his Talmidim, with Zdaka activities. He was very involved in caring for the poor families in town, for orphans, for widows. And if you think about that, his occupation, his primary occupation is with the teaching students, teaching in a yeshiva, and with dealing with the internal uh, issues and challenges of the town in the form of Zdaka activities. So we see again as reflective of the times. It's reflective of what's going on in Hungarian Orthodoxy is that the focus becomes more internal. No longer are they fighting the big external battles like they had in his father's generation. At this time, the focus is building up the internal Jewish community, keeping it strong, hunkering down so that Hungarian Orthodoxy has a chance of not just surviving but flourishing, which it did. His son continues on that path as well as son Rabbi Yaman Wolf uh, Lev becomes the fifth generation in Hungary in the in the Hungarian rabbinate from the Lev family dynasty there was a sixth generation also and he wrote a, this uh, this son wrote a sefer called the Antachas Bin Yaman he continues that legacy and they they through this we through this prism we can really see about the transformation and the development of Hungarian Jewish orthodoxy and their rabbinical leaders during the 19th and early 20th century. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to places of interest in the Jewish world. Stay healthy and safe. And thank you um, for listening and to the Klein family for the sponsorship for in honor of their grandmother Tova Klein and Lili Nishmas, Moshe Elazar ben Rabir so you can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites um, on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, 
uh, follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.